this is a time really to to share what's what's been happening where you're at, how the meditations have landed. I've noticed um, several times now when I do, not on my own, but when I'm in a guided meditation, standing meditation, um, that I I start feeling uncomfortable. I start feeling like, I start start feeling nauseous almost, and I start feeling sort of like a wave of uncomfortable like heat coming over my body. I don't know, maybe I need to pay attention to a certain part of my body that is triggering that as we're going through the awareness of the body. And maybe there's a part of my body that's that's triggering that. But I'm curious in your thoughts on that. Well, you know, certainly meditation opens up stuff that we don't know is there. You know, that's absolutely that's absolutely true. But with with anything one needs to be really really careful about the the attitude or the motivation that one has when one begins to open up to that. So some things um, like like matrixes. You open it up and you're into something else and it opens up and you're into something else and you open it up and then you're into something else. And and so with each place that you're opening up you need to feel um, resourced and grounded and comfortable and all the rest of our bodies are the, the places where memory is stored. So it's not the only place, but it certainly is a place. So sometimes what happens when we bring attention is, is that it feels intensely uncomfortable because something is opening up that hasn't, hasn't been known. And it's uncomfortable bringing it into a known. And so it's, it's never, it's never useful to push to force or to, you know, to lock into something and then, like, you know, that does not, is not at all what's needed. What's needed is finesse, skill, balance, uh, sensitivity, kindness, compassion, and really measuring one's own capacity with whatever is arising. Um, and so if one has a measure of one's own capacity, then you know when you can stay present with something and when you need to back off. And it's not clear yet what's going on. But um, we don't need to know what's going on in order to begin to learn how to, to approach it or to respond to it in a way that is skillful or compassionate. And so we move into something and then we get a sense we're at our edge of capacity and then we move back. And so that might mean that you sit down. But all kinds of, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that we've been through. And there's residues of stuff that we've been through that hasn't released yet. And so when we, we stand and we do any kind of energy meditation or energy work, it allows layers to release. And um, it's just a question of finding the right safety, holding, context, and not overextending. So, for example, with working with, you know, it, many people have been through things that are traumatic, and there's a traumatic residue that's in, in the body. 
And when that stuff starts to emerge, it can be really unsettling because your whole biochemistry can go um, out of balance and your minds can go um, very emotionally labile. But if one has some fundamental principles and understands how to work with it, not to lock into the unpleasant sensation, but to really hold a safe space and to stay with what's safe, and to return to places in the body that feel very comfortable. And it's like titrating or washing. Move back and forth between this place that's uncomfortable and the place that feels very safe. Then one can allow something to open and see what happens So it's an interesting question of when is it that we're being compassionate by staying with something, and when is it that we're being compassionate by not staying with something. And that really has to do with your motivation. So it's not in the activity, it's in the motivation. Because if the motivation is um, to avoid suffering, then there will be a lack of compassion in that. If the motivation is to recognize one's at capacity in suffering, then the motivation is a compassionate one. Really appreciate the body, the meditation of the body in a certain manner. Um, and it's just, well, it's just validate that what I already know, to start with my body um, before I try to do it. This thing that's happening in my mind usually, um, because I'm not able to have that container, that, that ability to see in without connecting first to my body usually. There's just something for me that's very, well, it just feels safe, right? I don't know. It's trustworthy. My body tells me if, if, if I'm uncomfortable or if I'm not comfortable and that that's okay, you know? Mm-hmm. In the, in the, when we're looking at the foundations of mindfulness, the first foundation is body. And so, you know, the Buddha's recommendation is really to establish awareness of the body as a kind of, like, the first place. And it's not like, you know, Buddhism for babies. It's like the ground that we constantly return to again and again and again and again and again. And in our, like, society where there's such a, like, a kind of epidemic, like, disconnection with our body, then it's even more important. You know, because we're very cognitive, mm-hmm. but we're very disconnected. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't help I mean, it doesn't give us any resource to process stuff. You can't process things through your cognitive functions. I really like the body stuff. I like the walking meditations and qigong. I feel like it's like a it's a it's a sign that points me down the path to bringing the mindfulness into other things. Mm-hmm. It connects me to the real world a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And the first time I did qigong actually was with you on a retreat you did, and I really like it a lot. It's kind of inspired me. I really feel the energy. I feel this tingling sensation that sort of like comes up your skin. I, I like it a lot. I feel completely disconnected from my body. So, like what you said, you know, just 
in general in that all comfortable place. This has been extremely nice for me to have this peace today. Mm-hmm. Just the eating was wonderful for me because I shovel. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. to with my second kid and I never eat fast and I was throughout the first month. Mm-hmm. Every time I ate because it was so fast. So it's the first time I've actually like been able to eat slow. I was like, seaweed, it's so pretty. For me, that was a really nice piece, and mm-hmm. uh, even though it was raining, you said go outside. I have a hard time sitting. Mm-hmm. It's a walking meditation, and especially I'm from a farm and used to being outdoors, mm-hmm. and so that piece for me is such a connector. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a reminder, and I don't do it enough right now in my life. Um, yeah, you, can, you can take a baby in a car. Oh, sure. Sure. It's just, yeah. it's coming out of this just yeah. like fight or flight mode and right. kind of survival one. Right. I'm starting to finally be able to explore these things right. again. And, yeah. um, you know, and something, um, Penny, one of you know, his protégés, he, he said something on a retreat that he said, you know, there's constant awareness and pain. And I can always focus on that meditation because I'm always in physical pain sitting. Right. There's always something going on. Or, yeah. Standing, I kept having to check to see if my foot on my weight on my right foot. The ball of my right foot hurt like crazy, even though my weight was distributed evenly. Yeah. It was coming, you know, it was coming out where the pain was centering. Yeah. Was real strange. And we were doing the kijon. My fourth toe was asleep the whole time. Random, but that's what it was. You know, it was just just interesting because. Well, with the kind of stuff that you're navigating. I would be um, encouraging you to do more standing and walking meditation and less sitting meditation. Mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, it's it's not helpful for you to like to superimpose an idea about what's really good for you and not have it actually be responsive to where you're at. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, coming out of a, you know, as you described, you know, not sleep and survival and all of those kinds of things, it, it's going to be uncomfortable sit still, you know, so some of that stuff more releases from your system, and it will release more um, easily through walking, standing, you know, it won't be quite as, as uncomfortable. So there's no need to um, kind of create this idea that sitting is the only thing that's helpful. That's, you know, people do that all the time. They have this idea about what meditation is, and it's, it's not what the Buddha said. It's not correct. You know, he, he gave four postures for meditation. Not one. And, you know, four formal postures, and then there's a whole meditation practice about just bringing awareness to whatever movement or posture or thing that one is doing, you know. But, yeah, you know, when one's in a, has been in a kind of a whirlwind or spin, and, you know, it's just amazing. It's just such an incredible blessing to be able to eat. You know, at a, at a pace that actually works for you. Yeah. yeah. So I'm really glad you could come today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I really like the earth walking. Mm-hmm. The, it's so funny, I never really thought of the earth being like a thousand miles below us.
small even tonight you think of dirt as being small or something like the universe is big but actually dirt is enormous you know. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate when you talked about sending the kindness out but we can bring it back to ourselves and showering ourselves with it because I tend to send it out to everyone else and forget it. When I was living in Australia, I met a woman who had a, a thousand-acre property, and she was always off wandering and always getting lost. And to get lost in Australia is actually not a joke, you know, because you can die in Australia because the, you know, the climate is harsh. There's not a lot of water around. So she learned, you know, she's got a lot of shamanistic stuff in her system, but she learned that whenever that would happen, she'd go out and she'd get lost and she'd, you know, take her a lot longer to get back than she thought. She'd just go up to whatever big tree she could find and lean into it and ask the, the, the tree to top her up, you know, to replenish her. And without a doubt, without without fail, it always worked. So trees like rocks, they've got a lot to give, but they don't put it onto you. You have to ask. You have got to ask. And I've never once been in a situation where I asked and I wasn't offered. You know? But we're not in a relationship where we, we live like that. We think of it as, a, as an it, not as a living being that's in a reciprocal relationship that has stuff to give. You don't, it's just not part of the way, you don't see that on the billboards. <laughs> it's not part of kindergarten or high school. You know, we're not taught how to live in relationship with the earth. But it's there. It's there to learn. And and so, you know, you know, she did it because it was a matter of survival. You know, she was she'd be starving or terribly dehydrated and she needed some nourishment. And without fail, she was always fine when she did that. And so it's just beginning to widen one's framework that, you know, it's not up entirely to us to figure it all out and to come up with everything that we need in order to nourish ourselves. We're actually in a reciprocal relationship with this with this world, and some of it is actually very willing to support. We just need to learn how to ask. So trees are great. Trees are fabulous, you know. So go make a tree friend, you know, in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I remember you were talking about it at the house one night. Like it wasn't kind of anything around where the tech center. You found like one of those little islands that were like a little patch of grass, like in a parking lot kind of area, and you were like, you know, let's do this, <laughs> you know. And I thought, gosh, you know, so I'm just, you know, this is a theme that keeps coming up for me to be thinking about yeah. and incorporate, I think, but. Um, yeah. 
It's very restorative. It's very, very healing. You know, and I have a friend who lives in a house, and her father is a, is a fabulous artist, and he built the house as an extension of the rocks. I love that house. I mean, I so love that house. I just love that house because the, the house feels like rock. And everywhere, you, every window you look out, it's like, this is just beautiful music of the rocks. Anyway, Pat was telling me about somebody in, in the same area who had some kind of a horrendous illness. I can't remember which one. And he just was was clear that he thought the rocks would help. So every day he'd go out and spend time with the rocks, and he was better. Now, obviously, this is not scientific evidence with enough double-blind studies to know that it's verifiable or reproducible, but it's like there's medicine in the earth, and there's medicine in our energy systems, and we just, we don't, We've lost that knowledge. We don't remember how to use it. I feel like when I, when I get out of practice, uh, I get to this point where I can no longer convince myself that it's important or important enough to do it. So it's like I've forgotten or lost touch with, with practice. And when I'm practicing, it's like, I'm like, I'm, this is the most important thing in the world. I have to always do this. I can't not do this. And somehow going across that chasm far enough away that you can't feel and know that you have to be doing it enough to do it. Um, but somehow it feels to me like the sort of groundedness activities and things kind of help a little bit because they're a little bit more tangible when you're not in that space. Like if you're really continuously practicing or you're in a retreat or something, sitting is like the most natural thing to do in the world, but sitting down for 10 minutes when you're busy and your mind's in 10 different places often seems like you just can't, you can't make the time or you can't see the value of it or something. Yeah, and when you have a two-year-old, how many ten minutes do you have to sit still? <laughs> and then it's like, you know, when they're asleep, it's like, otherwise forget it. Right. Like, totally forget it. So if your framework of meditation is about intensive retreat model, it's really, um, it's, it's going to be, it, there will be a chasm because there's very little retreat space that you can find with a two-year-old in the house. You know, so that it's got to be about something else other than that kind of still, silent sitting. And it's, it's a good point, because yeah. it's kind of where I'm at. I, yeah. can't, I can't create that right now. Right. And when I can, I'm too tired. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, Deepama was fabulous for that. Do you know about Deepama? Who? Mm-hmm. Deepama? Deepama was a, um, a highly, highly, highly accomplished meditation master who never ordained. So she was a lay woman. She was a grandma. And, you know, her, sto- her story is quite amazing. She she had a strong affinity with monastics from the time she was a real chi- little child. So her grandmother used to take her to the monastery, and she would mm-hmm. offer food to the monks. And she got to do things that girls absolutely never got to do in, in Asian society, you know, like wash their feet or wash their bowls. Or, I mean, it was just categorically not something that ever happened. So she married... She may, you know how in India it's just a very different culture. So in India, she was betrothed at the age of 12 to a man who was 25. Very shortly after they were married, he went to live to Burma, which is where he was working as an engineer. So he was an engineer. And because of the family custom, she went to go live with her in-laws, which was like a disaster. 
So um, after she was married, when she was 12, when she was 14, she went to live with him in Burma. So here she, a 14-year-old girl, you know, living with a man who's 27 by that time. And, you know, um, in a country she doesn't speak the language with nobody around that she knows. And it was just like, anyway, it's just an unbelievable challenge. But he was a very kind, very, very kind man. Very kind. So, you know, in India, you know, the whole thing about India is, is that every, you have to have babies. Like, it's, it's like, you got to have a baby. It's not like a choice. This is, you got to have a baby. And there were no babies. So the children, there's no, no children were conceived. And so, you know, after years and years and years, there were no children that were conceived. So this is not like a grief. This is like a catastrophe, you know, like a family catastrophe. So the in-laws tried to get him to leave her so that he would marry another woman so that she could bear children because this was like what they needed to do. So he put his foot down. But I mean, can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine having in-laws that are plotting for you to be abandoned? You know, and for a woman to be abandoned in Asia was like, you know, you're in the gutter, basically. You know, it's like there's no place for you. So he's put his foot down and said, no, I won't do this. And, uh, but, you know, this was another grief that she had to endure. And so finally, after I don't know how many years of marriage, many years of marriage, finally a child was born. So she went from being persona non grata to being, you know, the mother. And then the child died. And I think little Deepa was born. And Deepa lived. And then another child was conceived, and it was a son. And this boy died. And so in a period of ten years, she lost two children. She lost her health. She lost her parents. And and then her husband, who was involved with trying to take care of her, and the baby was working to do all of that. And his health collapsed, and he suddenly died totally unexpectedly. So she lost virtually everything she knew. Yeah. So, and her health was like, just, I mean, it, it just completely collapsed. So while she was married, she was asking if she could go learn to meditate, and, you know, her husband kept on saying, no, it's not the right time. So finally, after all of this, you know, she was so desperate. It was like, it was nothing. It was like, she didn't want, it was like, she didn't want anything else in the world, you know. There was nothing else that she was interested in. So because of whatever her, the virtues that had accumulated in her, it didn't take her very long for her to cut through and to really have profound realization. Very short period of time. So she came back home, transformed from being this like sickly, dependent, miserable, unhappy person to this radiant, luminous, healthy person. And, and so people said, "Well, you know, teach me how to meditate." So she became like the patron saint of the householders because she never ordained. So you know, moms with five kids would come. So you know, five kids under the age of seven. You know, you can only just imagine, you know, with one that's still nursing. So she would give the mom instructions on how to stay with the sense contact with the nursing and to use that in order to steady her mind and stabilize her mind so that she could be present with, in a very focused way, what was actually happening with nursing. 
and use that as meditation. And because with a, you know, a nursing baby, you have to nurse for hours. There was hours a day when this new mom, she wasn't a first-time mom, but she was shedding a baby, was nursing. And so, you know, and she, she, she never encouraged people to ordain, but she always encouraged people to get up before the chaos started in the house and to have some time when they could focus and be still and steady then. And so then when people would be able to start to do that, then the energy that would come from the practice would then be able to sustain them through the day so that their systems were not so rattled. And so then they could, they could, they could do that. They needed less sleep. They could get up earlier and they could spend a little bit of time at the end of the day. But when your system, when all you're doing is surviving, you can't get up earlier because you don't have any more energy to get up. So you need to have a little bit of, of something. You, you need a, you need five pennies in the bank before you can invest them, you know? You need to have something before you can let it grow. But her whole thing was absolutely within the house, you know? Within the house, within the family, with the kids, with the 10 million things that are needs and dependencies and everything that everybody needs of you. That that was the place to practice. And then occasionally, you know, to get up earlier so you could have a chunk before, you know, cacophony started. And then to let the cacophony be the place of practice when that's what you need. And she was adamant, you know. This is how you practice. So when her grandson was, I don't know how old, she and her daughter and her grandson and her sister, she was living in a house. And they kept the eight precepts, they kept noble silence, and they lived in silence in a retreat space for like a year. And at the end of the year, everybody had attained the first stage of enlightenment. Everyone. The sister, the daughter, the grandson, everybody had Practice. <laughs> the kids? Yeah, but when you have a being like that around, you know, it's like, you practice. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a book on that? There's two. Yeah. One is called um, The Life and Times of Deepama. If you just Google Deepama, there's two books, right? D-I-P-A-M-A. They're short. They're very, very easy to read, and they're incredibly inspiring. Mm-hmm. Incredibly inspiring. Yeah. It's on the website. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you can't find it, you can find it there. And uh, incre- incredibly, incredibly inspiring. Because, you know, the suffering that she had to navigate was just like, wow, monumental. I mean, she got to the place where she, there was nothing that interested her. Nothing. And she, the only thing that she could think of was that meditation was a way out. That was it. There was one door that was left. So what I'd like to suggest, if it's okay, is to have a period of um, walking meditation, maybe for um, half an hour or so, and then we can come back here. And if people have things that they'd like to talk with me one-to-one that they didn't feel comfortable bringing up in this space, then you can stay behind and just ask the questions. So whoever's talking to me can speak in confidence, and you can just keep an eye on who's here. You can come up and talk. Sometimes people don't.
And so would somebody be willing to ring the bell at a um, quarter to four? I'll just stay here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.